You're listening to Pros Like Us, brought to you by NFL Draft Blitz. And now, without any further ado, here's Alex and Lou. That's right, gang. We are back and better than last week, we hope. The Super Bowl has come and gone. It was a great game. We'll be talking about that in pretty decent detail. We don't have a whole lot else going on. We got some quarterback talk. Kyler Murray, Carson Wentz, some whispers and not so whispering. A lot of yelling actually coming out of those organizations. But first, uh, we do have a player interview, and uh, I think you're going to like this one. He's a versatile defensive back for the Hilltoppers of Western Kentucky. Calls Louisville home. Number 27, Omari Alexander. Omari, welcome to Pros Like Us, man. How you doing? I'm doing fine. How are you guys? Doing all right. Doing all right. Uh, I want to get into your story here. It was very interesting doing some some reading last night about your entire situation. But I'd like to start like right from the beginning. We try to get kind of like an origin story from our guys. What are your earliest memories about football, whether playing it, watching it, just the first thing that you can remember? Uh, the first thing I can remember is probably at about two years old, uh, maybe three. I would come home and I would put on my my Tennessee Titan or Indianapolis Colts shoulder pads and helmet and just kind of just run around and play. That's probably the, the very first memory I had. Now, your dad played at Louisville. I think he was a defensive back, too. Did he kind of steer you in one direction or another? Oh, he did. He played defensive back from uh, – 85 to 89 at the University of Louisville. He actually is a, a record holder for pass breakups, I, I believe, was it maybe 16. I'll have to go back and, and look for sure. But, uh, no, he didn't really scare me either way. It was kind of just in my blood, just kind of natural, because uh, at that age, I don't think it was much thing he could do, I could say. But I think it was just kind of natural, just kind of natural love for the game. Now, tell us your story. Obviously, you're from Louisville, Kentucky. Why did you decide to go to Eastern Kentucky at first, coming out of high school? Coming out of high school, I, I had some some interest from schools, more, you know, Division two, Division three, NAIA. I had slight interest from University of Louisville, went on some game visits, had communication with University of Kentucky, University of Cincinnati. I performed well at their camps. Just no, no scholarship offers from any of those schools. Uh, Eastern Kentucky kind of rolled around late with the, the new hire, Mark Elder. He was just the guy I felt, felt more comfortable with as far as how much we were communicating and things like that. Just kind of showed the most interest. You know, I wanted to go somewhere where I felt wanted. So I, I decided to take my chance and walk on to Eastern Kentucky. And then, uh, you know, I went through two years there. Just kind of a mutual department. I feel like I, I fulfilled the requirements that they had for me for uh, those two years to receive a scholarship. And uh, I asked multiple times, and, you know, I fulfilled all the requirements and didn't receive a scholarship. So I just felt like it was in my best interest for the future that I wanted for myself to go ahead and transfer. So why did you go to Western Kentucky after that? How did that come about? Leaving Eastern Kentucky, I was actually blocked from going to any conference school in any school that they played in the next two years. So the University of Louisville was not available. Any 
conference school wasn't available. So with me being a walk-on and not really receiving any scholarships while I was in the portal, I knew I was going to have to stay in-state. With Louisville being off and, you know, I didn't really, wasn't really that interested in University of Kentucky, uh, Western Kentucky was basically my only option. I actually came to Western Kentucky, had no guarantee of being on the team, and just kind of came and I was confident in myself that I'd make something work. Fall of 2018, I tried out in the fall. They said that the roster was full, so, you know, just training by myself uh, on my own for those six months. I got to January of 2019. They had another tryout in the spring, so I tried out. Um, I actually made the team that time. You know, I started off at at strong safety, getting to know the playbook and things like that. I had a very good outing in the in the spring, so they actually moved me to nickelback. They said they wanted to get me closer to the ball. I played my first season uh, in 2019, and I received a scholarship after that. So this is like the ultimate story of betting on yourself. I mean, you walk on at two different places, no guarantees. What were the toughest circumstances about being a non-scholarship player? Like it's just the circumstance itself, coming in and being a guy that ultimately wasn't really brought in, just kind of guy that is coming in to prove himself at the end of the day. I, I didn't have any hype or, you know, anything behind my name. It was just, okay, you're on the team. I mean, at the end of the day, they still didn't know if I could truly play football. So I would say that one of the toughest parts is just keep your mind right your mental right and just proving yourself every day consistently. So like you said, eventually you did earn a scholarship at Western Kentucky. What were your emotions like that day? It was a mixture of emotions because at that point I had went through three years of college and, you know, my parents are having to pay for everything that I'm going through and, and things like that as far as uh, tuition, board, meals, things like that. So it was just kind of just a relief for not only myself, but for them as well. Just grateful that all my all my hard work paid off. But it also was was motivation because I I knew that at that time when I beat all those odds, I knew that I could do anything after that. So it was motivation, excitement, and just blessed at the end of the day. So I said at the top, you know, I, I read some you know stories about you. The the one of Omari Najee. Right. You've been, you've been a survivor even before you were born. Just it blew my mind. I mean, I had to read it a couple of times. Maybe just a brief description. One, where the name comes from. And then if you could describe your mom and dad's faith when she was carrying you. Well, they, they actually decided my name. I think they had help from my grandfather and my mom's dad. And they were kind of just going through names. And they're a big believer in the meaning of names. So... I believe as they were going through the names, they found Omari, and then they found Najee. And those together means God's highest beneficial. I don't really know the, the full story of why they definitely went with that name, but I know the meaning had a big reasoning behind it. When my mom and my dad were in the hospital and you know the doctors were basically telling her that she shouldn't really take a chance on me, she, she talks to me about this all the time, just... Tyler was his faith, just believing in God that she'll make the best decision. And because I had a chance of being Down syndrome or, or, or trisomy 18, you know, like you said, it, it wasn't anywhere near 100% that I would even be here today. It's a blessing. It's, it's, it's a tough 
tough topic to talk about, but it's life. And, and I, that's why I, I know that I have a purpose. And at the end of the day, I'm just grateful to be this far. Well, I appreciate you taking, you know, going ahead and answering the question because I know it is tough. Just the statistics of the at-risk pregnancy were were so low that uh, you just attribute to sticking to obviously your parents, their faith, and everything else. Just just right. an amazing story, and I would recommend any of our listeners to go find that the story of Omari Naji. Now, fast forward to just I don't know about a year or two ago, you had a bout with COVID. What did you take from that experience? I mean, we can all imagine how terrible it probably was, but just what did you take from the experience after you survived that? I was diagnosed with COVID. I had every symptom but a fever, which was probably one of the weird parts of it. But every symptom but the fever, I was down. You know, it was right before the season in the summer for the COVID season, and I was down bad. I, I tried to do you know, maybe 10 push-ups. As soon as I would do a couple, you know, my head would just start pounding, things like that. So I knew it was best for me to just sit down and rest. Coming out of COVID, I had some, some complications. My EKG and my heart tests were fine. But when I got on the field, I would feel big thumps type of things like that in my chest. I actually wasn't going to perform in the 2020 season, but uh, I put trust in my trainers at Western Kentucky. They got me back to where I needed to be. I felt no pressure in my chest. I was getting back in shape. And, you know, we went through a through a segment of, of training that brought me back to, you know, the confidence level that I needed to, you know, put my best on the field. So your health right now, would you say that you're 100%? Oh, for sure. I'm 100%. Like I said, the, the health problems that I was having at the time, I don't know if it was maybe more of a – you know, a mental block just because of, you know, all the uncertainty and, and the the knowledge that we had of COVID at that time. But but I'm I'm definitely back 100% now. How long did it take you to get to full strength? How long did it take for you to recover? After my two weeks of quarantine, I would say it was about two and a half, maybe three weeks of the the regimen of training that, that I did with the trainers. And then... Throughout camp, I felt great. And then once we got to the first game of the season, I, I felt, and then I actually had the, you know, one of the best games that I've ever had in my whole football career, in all my life, you know, that first game against Louisville in 2020. So against your hometown team, you just put on a show. Tell us about that game. <laughs> right. Like I said, coming out of high school, um, I had some interest from, from Louisville. My dad went there, so I had a lot of, Love for Louisville. But, you know, I was disappointed that I didn't get offered a scholarship. You know, just being in front of the hometown, knowing that I felt like I could play at the the Power 5 level, but not getting that opportunity, it was just kind of a pride game. You know, I had family, over maybe 30 people in attendance that were supporting me. You know, I'm in my hometown. The same stadium that I used to go to youth camps in at, you know, six, seven years old is the same place and I, I'm performing to you know, show the world that I can play at the highest level. So I just went out there and played my game. I didn't do anything more or less than what I would do in any other game, but it was definitely more of a meaning behind that game. All right, when is your pro day? When is the big day? March 31st. Ah, so you're not one of the earlier ones. I mean, you're one of the later ones. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely one of the later ones. 
So tell us about it. I mean, how are you currently preparing for it? Where are you at right now training? Which state and at what facility? Uh, well, I have been training in Louisville, Kentucky uh, at Corey Taylor Sports Performance, CTSP. Corey's been doing a great job of getting me prepared. It's actually a one-on-one training with him right now. And he, he's had a, a great resume, a great you know tracking record of guys that have went through his, his uh, combine prep. I'm very confident in him. And, you know, the things I do on my own is just kind of how I was telling you earlier, just, you know, Pilates, yoga, stretching, meditation, things like that, just to keep my, my mental right as well. I'll be represented by uh, Jason Donald in the Done Deal Sports Management. You know, it's a great team because, you know, we're all kind of, you know, underdogs, how we came up. We all have a, a great understanding of each other. And, I, you know, I'm confident in, in the, the direction that we're going. How have they gotten you better? Like, what have you noticed over the past couple of weeks, over the past month, where you've gotten better as far as knowledge or as far as what you're doing in the practice facility? Corey pushes me to, you know, the limits. My first day in there, you know, he kind of had me thinking that if this was even for me but you know of course I knew I know it is and we got through that and since then it's just been a, a constant you know motivation a constant you know person behind me that's pushing me to be the best I can be you know both of them just believe in me and that's all I need from from anyone because I'll do the rest I just need someone to believe in me and, and just know that that I can reach the goals that I have set out for myself as far as training I've seen that I've gotten faster stronger more flexible. When I came in, one of my goals was to develop great hip strength, great hip flexibility and things like that. And I've seen major results in that in that aspect as well. But you know, I want to just go out there and show that I can run fast, you know, move well. I, I feel like I put on tape that I can cover, I can tackle and also play a big role on special teams. What would you say is the biggest question mark about your game, the biggest misconception that scouts have about you? Maybe my size. Like I said, once you watch the tape, I play much bigger than, than my size on, on paper. And I feel like I'm, I'm a pretty big, solid guy for what's written down on the paper. And uh, I've shown that. Yeah, I, I feel like the only question mark would be my size. Let's talk about the Tropical Bowl experience, the All-Star game that you went to. How would you describe that, and what did you learn from it? It was a great experience. I went out there, went there two days, actually two days before it started, just to you know, kind of get my mind right, get a feeling of, of where I was at. My first day was, wait, uh, we had measurements, meetings, and then we had our first practice. You know, the first practice I went, maybe I had, I think, about eight or nine targets. I didn't lose one rep in any of those one-on-one, team, anything like that. I didn't give up one one catch that whole day. Uh, day two was kind of similar with meetings, practice, and then the interviews as well. So day two was, was similar to day one. I feel like I was... You know, one of the top DB, if if not the the best DB at the Tropical Bowl, and I, and I feel like I put that on display. The game that was almost a dream come true because, you know, knowing my story, knowing how far I came, things like that, just to be in the position to compete with you know some of the top 
college football players in the nation. It just gave me motivation and put it in perspective of how blessed I am just to be this far. So it sounds like you've got a pretty good support system, all-star game helping you out as well. What, what's been the impact on your game from coaches White and Smith at Western? Coach Smith was actually the coach that tried me out at the tryout. And he, he's the first one that said, yeah, I'll take him in my room. He was actually the Nichols coach at the time. But when I got on the team, Coach White felt like it was best for me to start at safety and get to know the playbook, you know, kind of be a general in the back end so that when I did move positions that I would have knowledge of everything that's going on around me. And I just feel like they were both great at developing me. First year just coming in and, you know, helping me get the knowledge of the playbook, um, just bringing me along. They, they showed, you know, a lot of confidence in me. I feel like I, I proved them right at the end of the day. All right, so you had a pretty good all-star experience. You had a couple of teammates play at the senior bowl that I think showed out as well. D'Angelo Malone was the defensive MVP of the game, and watching some of the practices on ESPN and uh, NFL Network, every time he, he lined up, it seemed like he was winning. And then your quarterback, Bailey Zappi, also he impressed all week. Give us a thought on right. each of those guys. Both of them, just great players. Starting with D'Angelo, most humble guy. You know, he comes in every day with the same mentality, which is get better, 1% better each day. Like he said, he's a dominant player. If he doesn't take any reps off, you know, he's going give to it, give it his all every play and dominate. You know, two-time player of the year. Uh, like you said, Reese's boy defensive MVP. I mean, you, you can't really say much more about him. He's, you know, he's, he's just an all-out great guy. And as far as Bailey, I, I only got to play with him for one season, but he kind of showed me, a, you know, a Brady effect. He came in every day like he was a freshman. The way he prepared – you know, the way he, he went about every day was like he had something to prove. He he was the leader in the leader in every stat for a quarterback, but you wouldn't know that if you walked in the locker room. So, you know, they're both just humble guys, hardworking guys. They've never been complacent at all. You know, I feel like any team that gets them, it'll definitely be a steal. Bailey Zappi set all types of records in that offense. I mean, obviously, it's a very friendly passing offense with Zach Keatley coming in. That was amazing as far as what he did. Right. Being a defensive player gave us a lot of confidence because uh, we knew that as long as we held uh, held the offense out, that, you know, our offense would come on the field, led by Bailey, and, you know, put points on the board, so... He gave us a lot more confidence. I know in the past couple of years, the offensive side had some struggles, but this year, you know, Coach Heldon, Coach Kidley, and, you know, the offense, offensive guys kicked it in gear. You know, I feel like they, they were a big part of the success that we had. All right, let's talk about another guy that kind of set the world on fire, also another transfer. He entered the draft. It's Jared Stearns, the wide receiver. That guy's uncoverable, I think, and I'm sure you matched up against him because he's a slot guy. How tough was it to cover that dude? Oh, Jared, that's another great guy, another another humble guy that, that comes to work with the pro mentality. I did get to match up with him a lot in the slot this year. Uh, we, we definitely battled. I won a lot of reps. He won a lot of reps. You know, it was a mutual battle, mutual respect that we have for each other. And I feel like he's a, a big part of the reason why I had success this year and vice versa, because we just pushed each other and we had mutual respect that you know, every time we came on the practice field, we were going to get each other better. But, you know, I'm proud of him because 
you know, many people didn't really think that he had it in him. And uh, he proved to, you know, the world he's worthy of everything that he's, he's received. So, you know, I'm just proud of all three of those guys, especially coming in as transfers, you know, earning their respect and ultimately just proving the world wrong. Western Kentucky is all about giving chances. I mean, they gave you a chance coming from Eastern Kentucky, right? They gave Zappi and Jared Stearns a chance. Like, they came from Houston Baptist. So it seems like, you know, Western Kentucky is willing to take chances on smaller school guys. Yeah, I would definitely say that. I would definitely say that. Um, You know, just exactly us three, for an example, we came in and had great success. But I just feel like that's the respect that, you know, Coach Helton has for, you know, just the players around college football and ultimately the respect that we have for him because he's given, you know, a lot of opportunities to guys and they took advantage of him. So it just shows that Coach Helton, he has an eye for talent. He has a way of producing players to be the best that they can be. Well, in this day and age of uh, mobility, you have to be able to move the between the transfer portal, guys coming in and out. We talked about versatility throughout the interview. Omari, as far as being versatile, how does that specifically apply to your game? And then I guess, how is that going to help you make an NFL squad? Right. I feel like I'm one of the most versatile DBs that, you know, you guys or anybody else to talk to. I've played every position in the secondary at the highest level. You know, I played strong and free safety at Western Kentucky. I played cornerback at uh, Eastern Kentucky and Western Kentucky. Being in the nickel, it kind of gives you a, a linebacker type of feeling as well, as long as with the slot corner. You know, at nickel, you're playing four or five positions in one. I had the chance to rush off the edge, um, you know, blitz, cover, basically show, show how versatile I am. You know, that I feel like that'll be a big part that separates me from, you know, other people that that are in the draft this year as well as special teams. I feel like that kind of downplay of, you know, football is special teams, and that's a phase that I take pride in. You know, I've excelled at each position that I've played from DB to special teams. I showed that at the Tropical Bowl, and I also showed that throughout my career. All right. Very good. Well, we appreciate you taking the time, Omari. Uh, you have an opportunity here to shout out your uh, social media handles. Anything else you want to plug? Uh, it's all yours. I just want to thank God for this opportunity. I want to thank you guys for having me on and uh, just giving me this platform to speak to the world and speak to the you know the GMs, the coaches, the scouts, and things like that. Uh, my Instagram is Omari, O-M-A-R-I dot Alexander. My Twitter is Omari underscore Alexander, and you know, I'm just I'm just thankful. Uh, I look forward to proving myself in my pro day, and hopefully I get an opportunity beyond there to prove myself as well. All right. Well said, sir. Don't bet against this guy, gang. He's a true survivor. Again, thank you, Omari, for your time, and uh, good luck the rest of the way. Hope to see you on an NFL yes, team here. Yes, sir. Thank you, guys. Alex, we had a Super Bowl. What'd you think? You know, honestly, I thought that Joe Burrow was going to have one of those Tom Brady moments. I mean, I wrote to you on Twitter. They they were marching down the field. I thought they were at least going to get into field goal range, and then it was going to go into overtime, and then your boy Evan McPherson was going to be the hero, like Adam Vinatieri has been the hero for the Patriots time and time again. I thought it was going to be one of those. I mean, but 
fourth and one play. The guy wasn't open, and then, you know, the, the defensive line came through. Obviously, it was Aaron Donald, and it's just Burrow didn't have the time or the reaction to kind of go to the second read. It was a little bit weird. I just thought they would get rid of the ball quickly in that situation, and it was an exciting Super Bowl. I mean, the Rams got off to a fast start. It looked like they were going to run away with it, and then all of a sudden, the OBJ injury happens. And then the the Bengals slowly but surely started to come back. Stafford made a couple of mistakes, and the offense stalled. They did. Actually, the Bengals did a very good job on Cooper Cup, but he still came away with his big moment. They did. Well, let's hit that last series for a second because, you know, up until that time, I mean, other than really the bomb to T. Higgins in the second half, and even that was kind of questionable. I mean, I'm sure everybody in the league, the sky judge, everybody saw what happens to Ramsey's head, so they let it go. Fine, it's a touchdown. They really struggled offensively most of the second half, but on that drive, you know, the the quick one to chase, and then he runs up silent, but they're sitting there at second and one, and then it just got a little strange. And we talk about this with some other young quarterbacks as far as not being patient and not taking what's given to them. But on the second, going back to the second and one play around midfield, where again, hindsight's 2020, and you can look at the all 22, and I'm sure on every play you can pick, show the quarterback, hey, you got open guys here. But he did have a couple of open guys underneath, would have been easy first downs, and he decides to just like sail it down the sideline and it goes out of bounds. And basically, you just wasted second down. Did you get that sense there that maybe Burrow, I don't want to say panicked, but maybe he got a little greedy? But they had a timeout like in their back pocket. They could have ran it there, Lou. I mean, it's second and Ab- one. Absolutely. Yeah, no I question. I mean, pick up five yards at least. I mean, spread the field. Get three, four wide receivers and let Mixon run with it. I mean, down the middle, at least he picks up the first down. And then, and then you can spike it or whatever. You can call a timeout. They had some options. I also question the play calling a little bit, just in general. You talk about that second and one play. I just question, like on fourth and one, you can run it. As far as I'm concerned, you can spread the field and just give it to Mixon and let him run. I mean, I'm sure he can rumble down and get that one yard. If Mixon would have been on the field. That was the crazy thing, that on third and one, instead of handing it to Mixon, they give it to Pirine, where again, now I think maybe, are we trying to fool him a little bit? Hey, Pirine's in the game. They usually pass when he's in the game. So, you know, maybe we'll fool him and we'll hand off. And that's just the play that the Rams made on defense on third down was just, you know, you can say what you want about the sack because they were getting to him all, you know, the whole second half. I mean, Burrow didn't have hardly any time to throw the ball. But on the real key was on the third and one where they just stuffed him. Donald almost, almost had him like in a vice grip, <laughs> pulling him back. And you think at first, you're like, oh, geez, you know, did he get the first down? Didn't he? But no, I mean, it wasn't even close. So, yeah, I, I question that. And, and again, every coach will go through this. And I'm sure Zach Taylor, will. he's going to replay this in his mind. He's going to replay it on his, on his video, on his computer, on his iPad. I'm thinking the rest of the offseason, you know, what could he have done in that situation better? And there's so many different things, but... 
again, it's just like like a teenager or a young adult. You know, it's sometimes you can tell them and say, hey, here these situations come up. This is, you know, these are some things that I've run into as somebody more experienced. Why don't you try doing it this way? But more often than not, they have to fall on their face at least once before it's, oh, okay, I get it. So again, I didn't mind the play call second and one, maybe going for the shot, but it really wasn't there. He had guys underneath, and that would have been an easy first down. So again, all credit to the Rams' defense, but it almost rivals the the Seahawks against the Patriots, and you're like, just give it to beast mode. Give it to Mixon and see what he can do. You know, three chances to get a yard, but here we are. But again, all credit to the Rams' defense, especially Aaron Donald in that series because third and fourth down, he's normally otherworldly, but he really showed out on those two plays. And I don't know that if we're still voting for the MVP that he doesn't get it after the you know that last series of plays. Well, absolutely, but they do vote for the MVP before that, and that that's the reason why Cooper Cup won it. But, you know, the Rams weren't much better on offense. No, 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 they were not. Sean McVay was committed to the run, but Cam Akers just, they, they couldn't find any opening lanes at all. I mean, the Bengals just stifled them over and over and over again. And that, I mentioned that the Rams were kind of in high gear. They were moving in the beginning of the game. I'm not saying that... It would have been different, but OBJ's injury kind of was the turning point. Changed everything, yep. And then, obviously, Stafford, you know, throwing that pick in the end zone. Bates coming up with it. That was a huge play. And I just thought the baby Bengals, they were right there, like right in the game. All they needed to do was just not outsmart themselves, and they certainly did, it seems like. I mean, Burrow got too cute. They got too cute with the play calling. And I also have a problem with Cooper Cup getting the MVP. Look, he got the game-winning touchdown, but it's not like he lit the world on fire in the Super Bowl. I mean, I'm, you might as well just give it to somebody like Stafford. Why not? Usually in that situation, that's what happens. I mean, you can look at it, you know, year to year. I think Brady last year, Mahomes the year before. I mean, you could easily, you know, the Chiefs year, Damian Williams, one of the defensive players, you know, could have easily have gotten it. Last year, same thing. The, the Bucks defense, I'm sure there was one or two of those guys could have been voted the MVP. Group text, a couple of my friends, we normally do this. And there's a, well, MVP. And again, I'm thinking, well... I got to say it's Cup only because on that final drive when everybody knew that's where the ball had to go, including the, the Bengals defense, that's where the ball had to go, and it kept going there. When you make plays like that on the game-winning drive, your name has to be in contention, so that's what I was thinking at that time. Maybe Stafford would have gotten it. I don't know that his two interceptions, the one to Bates in the end zone was kind of a... Basically, a chuck and duck play was third and long. I don't know that it really cost them that much. Obviously, you don't want to throw an interception, but it wasn't that big of a deal like a game changer. And then the other one, which could have been a game changer, was kind of like a tipped, missed ball. I mean, it was a rookie receiver. Maybe they weren't quite on the same page. Guy knocks it up in the air. And again, going back to Donald, he saved their their bacon on that drive too, where, you know, they Bengals could have easily gone up by a couple of scores. Touchdown there, but sacks 
Burrow on third down forces a field goal, and now uh, Bengals are only up twenty to thirteen. But the biggest surprise to me was the was the Bengals defense. You brought it up. You mentioned it. Yeah, it was amazing how stout they were against the run. He stayed committed to it just to kind of keep him honest as much as he could. But I think also they were buying time uh, since OBJ wasn't on the field because he was opening up the field. I mean, he was on his way probably to having an MVP-type performance. Now, granted, it was only two catches, but they were two really big plays, and he was making them all the way. So I, I felt really bad for OBJ. I mean, not that I've been a big fan of his, but just to get to that point to be playing so well throughout this whole playoff drive and the end of the year and now he's in the big game and bang that just that was just awful and it seems like he has a torn ACL so it's going to take him a lot of time to get back on the field and the same one he tore a couple of years ago but you know what the Rams assembled this all-star team and they really did. I mean, they brought everyone, it seems like. They traded for everyone. They sacrificed their picks. They brought in Stafford. He was kind of like the last piece of the puzzle, and they got it done. I mean, this is what McVeigh envisioned. This is what Les Snead was going for the last couple of years. They get rid of Goff, bring in Stafford, and hey, it's, it's a Hollywood ending. Absolutely. And, you know, say what you will about team building. There's more ways to do this. And... I don't know if it's a if it's a money thing. I don't know if it's just again. I mean, we've talked about this before with the younger GMs in the league being a little bit more aggressive and seeing more trades and more teams going for it and mortgaging the future, if you would. More like NBA tends to do things with with movement. Now, obviously, in basketball, it's a little bit easier. You get a couple of superstars, and you're kind of in the conversation for championships, whereas in the NFL, obviously, that's not going to guarantee you anything. Stafford is the one that that really, what he did in the playoff run and his fourth quarters almost the entire season, not that, you know, I'm going to be one of these guys, oh, that puts him in the Hall of Fame. I don't think if he quit right now, he makes the Hall of Fame. But he's definitely, this puts him on his way. What, I don't know what the passer rating was for the, in the fourth quarter. It was just ridiculous. 14 touchdowns, zero interceptions. And when they had to have the drive, he made the right plays, the big plays. Now, you can say what you want about the no-look pass. And yes, he's been doing it forever. It's just that it happens in Detroit and in non-primetime games and typically games that didn't mean a whole lot. But when he froze Von Bell on that play, I mean, it wasn't like he was doing it just to make it look good. He actually, that made the play. Freezing him, making him, you know, kind of focus on the tight end underneath and he throws it right behind him. Cup comes in. That kind of trust that kind of stones, if you would, to make that throw on that drive in that game. Wow, that was impressive. We knew Cooper Cup was a good player, right, coming into this year. Not a top five receiver. But do you think Stafford unlocked Cooper Cup? I think they had a special connection, Lou. There's no question about it. I think it was just on a different level. But I also think that the Robert Woods injury unlocked Cooper Cup. I mean, because OBJ came later, and then Van Jefferson, and took him a little time to get going, Tyler Higby, Cooper Cup was the offense when Robert Woods went down. So I think he just took it to a different level. He's a really unselfish player, and he's not about, you know, 
getting 15, 20 targets a game. That's not who he is, and he's never been that type of guy. A really unselfish guy. Can't say that for a lot of wide receivers in this league, but he is. And when they did have Woods, they they would run those jet sweeps three, four times a game, right? And to pull it out on fourth and one in their own territory. And Cup, that cut that he made to go between the two defenders, like at the line of scrimmage, maybe even behind the line of scrimmage. Again, I think that's kind of what cemented it to me as we're going through that drive, that this guy's got to be the MVP. I mean, that was just such a huge play. What do you think about the talk that coming out after the Super Bowl that Aaron Donald wants to retire, that Sean McVay, you know, there are rumors surfacing that he's thinking about walking away and becoming a, a commentator. I mean, do you think that those two guys walk away and not go for the repeat? I think they will. First, I want to say that Aaron Donald is really underpaid. I mean, if you look at his salary, And the fact that he's the best defensive player in the game, the contract that DJ Watt got, I hope they they give him, you know, they restructure his deal, give him more of a signing bonus maybe up front, because, I mean, Donald deserves it. Sean McVay, I guess, I mean, he won the Super Bowl. This is it. He wants to start a family. He maybe wants to become like a, a John Gruden or something like that, walk away earlier than he did. I still think that both guys come back for the repeat, But I think once those rumors start, that we might see those guys walk away a lot sooner than we anticipate. And they say, well, it's not about the money. Well, it's definitely about the money. And I think Aaron Donald is due maybe $15 coming this season if he plays. I don't know that he's really set to retire. I think, you know, once they get to before that game and you're answering questions after questions after questions, I don't know. I didn't hear him say it from what they're saying. Well, don't be surprised. I think it was Ronnie Harrison on NBC. Don't be surprised if he walks away. I don't know how the question was framed. Maybe it was like, what else do you have to prove? You know, you've won, you know, three times, you know, defensive player of the year. You've done all these things. You're like first team all pro just about every year you've played. You're about to play in a Super Bowl. What else do you have to prove? Well, maybe that's it. That's the last thing is just to get the ring on my finger. And they take and run with it and say, well, hey, he might be thinking about hanging it up. He's got a lot of money sitting on the table. Yeah, he's grossly underpaid. Obviously, he signed his contract well before T.J. Watt and some of these other high-paid defensive players, and I'm sure his next contract is going to be ridiculous. And yeah, it's going to have to be restructured because you know the Rams got you know their salary cap is so backloaded, and they keep pushing things into the future. Eventually, they're going to have to pay the piper. But I don't know that he steps away. As far as the coach is concerned. Well, he's 36 years old. Hell, yeah, he could take like three or four years off, come back, and he's still a very, very young man. Now, from what I heard from Dan Patrick, Dan Patrick obviously has a lot of sources inside ESPN and other places. He's been doing this for years that he said that one of his sources said that there's definite interest in that building to bring him on maybe in studio or maybe to go on to uh, Monday Night Football. So the Gruden connection that you made you know, could certainly be there. But just coming off of a Super Bowl, that would be awfully tough, I think. Especially if, I mean, Stafford's going to stick around. If they can keep this group together, at least the core of it, I think he definitely comes back. There's a slight chance, but I think it's very minuscule that he walks away. I also okay. think that the baby Bengals are set up uh, to, you know, continue this run. Because, first of all, they've got the quarterback. All right, he is the quarterback. 
And then you've got those weapons. All you have to do is just kind of fix that offensive line a bit. I mean, draft a guy so Joe Burrow is not running for his life. He's not the most mobile quarterback out there. The defense is pretty decent, the, the guys that they added in free agency. So this isn't just like the Bengals made the Super Bowl in Joe Burrow's second year, and now we're never going to see them again. This is going to be like a, a Dan Marino type of situation. No, the Bengals have a lot of weapons. Man, they, Mixon is like 25, 26 years old. Are you kidding me? They could dominate like the AFC North for like the next, I don't know, seven or eight years. Well, as far as the comparison goes, and again, I'm not saying that the Bengals go by the way of those Dolphins, but they were pretty young too. I mean, he had Duper and Clayton. They had weapons and everything at their disposal as well. And then just over the years, things erode. But yeah, I agree with you. I mean, obviously you watch the defense play. They looked amazing. All the like we talked about this as they were going through the playoffs, even before the the playoffs, when they were kind of at the top of their division as far as those free agent moves that they had made on defense, and all those had kind of you know worked out. Bates, I think, is a free agent, so obviously that's a huge one that they have to get back. Let's just see if the Bengals don't stay the Bengals, meaning that they don't spend a little bit more in free agency or get the type of protection that that the franchise is going to need. And when I say franchise, I mean Joe Burrow. And yeah, he is the franchise. I think he can move. I don't think there's any problem with his, his ability. I don't think he's a statue by any sense. It's just that he's running for his life in a lot of cases. And he does hang in there and he takes sacks which to his credit, those could be bad throws that get intercepted. So they've got money under the cap. I think they might be one of the the only teams that don't have like an indoor facility, like their own indoor facility for practicing. You, when you, they show them practicing outside, they're like by, you know, underneath some interstate somewhere. I mean, it's just amazing that they're a National Football League franchise, all this billions of dollars that get rolled in to TV money and everything else that they uh, Mike Brown is sitting on that they don't spend a little bit more. So I hope they do for his sake, for the sake of these young quarterbacks in the AFC, because you've got Herbert, you've got Mahomes, you've got Allen, you've got uh, Lamar Jackson, obviously Burrow, Zach Wilson in, in New York, Lawrence in, in Jacksonville. I mean, it's just, this is amazing to me. I mean, th- this could be you know, almost a historic era for quarterbacks all in one conference. But yeah, I mean, the Bengals are definitely here to stay. I also want to give credit to Marvin Lewis, the former Bengals head coach, because he changed Cincinnati's culture. A head coach for like 12, 13 years there. He never got that playoff win, but he was able to build that culture and change the way the Bengals operate because they were cheapskates before and now they spend they've done some Do they they upgraded things they spend a little bit but well they in free agency they spent quite a bit you wouldn't have seen them go after like somebody like Trey Hendrickson in the past it wasn't a huge contract though but still, I mean, they always stay Bate, away from them. They let other guys, they let them go, and that's it. They I, don't think do Bate, it. I think Bates might be the litmus test for us. If they pay him, then I'm, I'm ready to believe that they're going to do the right thing. But if they let him go because maybe his asking price is too high, I mean, he's one of the best safeties in the league for my money. I think it's a crime when Marvin Lewis isn't getting looked at for a head yeah. coaching jobs. Yep. 
in the NFL. He should, because look at what he did to the the lowly Bengals. When he arrived there, I mean, they were nobody. They went to the playoffs, uh, like half of the time that he was there. They never got a playoff win, but they were close. I mean, he was just unfortunate a couple of times, like Carson Palmer going down with an injury in, in a playoff game. Bad breaks. I think Marvin Lewis definitely deserved that job, but he's never going to get one. It's hard to win because you see, he's so eloquent. He's so smart. He's been, I mean, obviously, defensive coordinator at the Ravens before he went there, defensive coach with the Steelers before that. His resume speaks for itself. It's just, again, didn't win in the playoffs. And in a lot of cases, and we talked about the, you know, Brian Flores, this is part of his suit as well, is that a lot of, once the minority coaches, have their chance, they rarely get a second one. Now, Lovey Smith looks like he's bucking that trend. So let's see what happens there. But he's been uh, coaching with uh, Herm Edwards out at Arizona State. Maybe he's, maybe he just enjoys that right now and is resigned to that. But I'm sure he would relish an opportunity. That's for sure. The officiating, real quick. I don't want to get in the weeds on this, but were you okay with the officiating? Other than T. Higgins throwing Ramsey out of bounds and then catching the ball. I think the officiating was horrible for the Super Bowl. You expect that they pick the best of the best to officiate this game, and then you know they do crap like this. I mean, you could always go back, and they, they've got so many referees on the field, Lou. Yeah, and it's just it's atrocious when when they miss obvious calls like that. I mean, he's looking and he's watching that battle between the cornerback and the wide receiver. I mean, I was rooting for the Bengals, and I'll take that touchdown, but that was an obvious offensive pass interference call. The only thing I'll say is that they really didn't call much the first three quarters. There was, I think, three flags, and they were just things that you have to call. Delay a game, false start, and then when Hargraves lost his mind and came onto the field in street clothes, (laughs) like celebrating with his team, they had to call those. But then I think what happened was in the fourth quarter— there were some judgment calls, like the, the the holding on the linebacker against Cup on third down. The pass interference, I think it was, certainly was pass interference against Eli Apple. Again, the call against the linebacker, 99 times out of 100, the, the offense gets that call. So I think just the timing of it. And then you don't know what the referees are kind of told by their bosses, basically, before the game. Because... To me, they weren't going to call anything the first three quarters. I don't know if they were going to call anything in the fourth quarter, but it was just so obvious, and you'd hate to see the game decided on those calls. But it's been a problem throughout uh, the season, and I'm sure it's things that they're, they're going to continue to look at. Hey, let's end the show with, guess what? Quarterbacks. Our boy Kyler Murray, at some point after the, you know, during the, I don't know if it was a week ago or whatever, decides to scrub his social media of everything, everything Arizona Cardinals, everything. Just leave, left, left a couple of pictures up on his Instagram, and people are going nuts over this. Then you've got a leak out of the Arizona offices that reports that he's kind of aloof, and he's not a leader, and he's not the first guy in, last guy out. And again, these are all reports. We don't know how true this is, but again, this information does come out. Reports that maybe he wasn't real keen on going back in the game at the end against the Rams in the playoffs. Now, if any of this is true, first off, you drafted the guy. You knew what his personality was and so forth, so this was something that he's always needed to work on. 
But again, it comes back to me is this it's this social media versus face-to-face conversations. And I don't know if it's a generational thing that, you know, kids his age typically that's the way they communicate is either through social media, text or, or whatever it happens to be, and it just gets blown out of proportion. I don't know what the hell is going on in Arizona. It just doesn't feel right that your supposed franchise quarterback, one, he's acting this way, and then, you know, somebody in the building is kind of firing back. The Cardinals just made the playoffs. All right? They made the playoffs, yes. They embarrassed themselves against the Los Angeles Rams. But in his third year, Cliff Kingsbury and Kyler Murray accomplished what the Cardinals were striving for when they drafted him number one overall. So they're heading in the right direction. So if he delivers what he did last season in 2022, he's going to get like a top three quarterback contract. He's not going to pivot back to Major League Baseball, right? He's not going to demand the trade. Yeah, I don't think he's going anywhere. Again, it just feels like a ploy to get that extension sooner than later. You know, they did draft him number one overall right after the previous year taking a quarterback in the top 10 they've brought in a lot of offensive talent for him so he's got to believe that they're trying to help him I don't know what the relationship is between Kingsbury and Murray you'd like to think at least on the surface hey he recruited him from high school coaching him here in the NFL they've got some sort of connection but you know is it strained does he not like the offense yeah I just found it strange you watch the playoff game he really didn't take off and run much whether it was on a scramble or called runs and that seemed weird to me so I, the whole thing just feels like there's like a lack of communication somewhere and both sides are like somewhat pissed at the other side and hey we got to get in a room figure out you know how we're going to play from here on in what they'll accept from their franchise quarterback and what he wants from them and what you know some sort of compromise because going this route is not going to do anybody any favors and the veterans in that locker room have got to be thinking what the hell this is our leader. This is our quarterback. This guy is going to lead us to wherever we got to go. And he's, you know, he's not focused on on the job at hand. So he's not going anywhere, you know, as far as I'm concerned, my opinion. He is not going anywhere. It's just that get everybody in a room, get on the same page, and let's move on. Before the draft, Lou, there were rumors, there were certain people that were saying that Kyla Murray is a me first dude. Okay, there were some rumors out there. Okay, it's not as bad as like Cam Newton stuff or, you know, some other quarterbacks that have been scrutinized in the past. Finger pointing, you know, hey. But there were some stuff. There were some stuff. Plus, we talked about it during the season, Lou. You don't like his body language. When things are going well, he is at the front. When things are going bad, like, you know, in the playoff game against the Los Angeles Rams, he didn't go back in. He distanced himself from his teammates. He was kind of standing by himself. So that's a problem. A quarterback is much bigger than just putting up 300 passing yards and 100 yards on the ground, all right? If you don't get the win and if your teammates don't respond, if you're not a leader and you can't inspire them and you're kind of just a guy that that does that cares more about stats then it's going to be a problem. It will resurface, and you know, guys on that team are going to have a problem with it. 
Yeah, I mean, it's part of the job. If you want that money, if you want that position, it's 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You have to be a leader. And is it fair that this is put on these young guys? But life isn't fair in most cases, especially if you want that position, if you uh, feel that you can be that guy and you want the money that goes along with it. Well, taking the money and accepting that position, these are the things that go along with it. So again, people have different personalities, different ways to lead, but you can't do this. You can't come off like a spoiled brat and say, well, geez, you know, we're not losing because of me. It's not my problem. So that just can't go. And again, you've got J.J. Watt. You've got a lot of veteran leadership there. Let's see what happens with Chandler Jones. You know, if he walks and, you know, some other some other free agents walk, we'll see. I mean, James Conner, I think they just signed him for a year. So let's see what, what happens with him. Uh, word out of Indianapolis, if you believe it. Carson Wentz might be on the outs there. Not so much from his part, but from the team. Whether they cut him or trade him, uh, they're going to have to make a decision here very soon. I think he's got a pretty decent-sized bonus that comes up sometime in March. Yeah, obviously, they underachieved. Again, you look at his statistics, they weren't horrible. They were actually pretty good. But you get beat with the playoffs on the line the last game of the year in Jacksonville. That stinks on ice okay that's just horrible and obviously you're the guy we're just talking about being the leader of the team so it's going to fall on you in a lot of cases so frank reich might be getting some pressure from ursay this sounds like an ursay type move they have a revolving door at quarterback here since andrew luck what do you do i mean is is he tradable would a pittsburgh step up and take this guy. I can't think of any, of any other situation that might even think of it. I think they're going to cut him, Lou. I think they're going to cut him. They're going to eat that salary a bit. Somebody's going to pick him up, obviously, and he, Carson Wentz is going to be challenging for a starting job somewhere. But I just can't imagine somebody giving up a draft pick or any draft capital there. I think Carson Wentz mostly disappointed. I mean, yeah, you can look at the stats, but the Colts were a playoff team. And the fact that, you know, he went on the COVID list and then he came up short in that last game, it's just, it doesn't look good. And the fact that the Colts are moving on from him is probably a signal for other teams. Like the Eagles moved on from him and then the Colts were happy to get him. And then after a year, they're they're cutting loose most likely. Chris Ballard inherited Andrew Luck. And he hasn't been able to replace him in any way. He's been scared to draft a quarterback. Like in the first couple of rounds, he drafted Jacob Eason. Two years, they cut him. They kept Sam Ellinger. So, like, he hasn't addressed the position. I think the Colts need to draft a quarterback. I don't think they can afford to go the route of let's trade for another guy. They brought in Phillip Rivers for a year. They brought in Carson Wentz. That hasn't worked. They need to draft a young guy, in my opinion. And to me, at this point, Ballard has been scared to draft a quarterback early. I mean, what else do you call that? Because he knows that he's not going to be Andrew Luck. So he's willing to patch it up with some veteran guys. But who's out there? Deshaun Watson isn't getting traded to the Colts because that's within the division. Forget about his legal problems. I don't think Aaron Rodgers is going to go there. Rodgers will probably most likely surface somewhere the Denver Broncos. So who are you going to get? Jimmy G? Is Jimmy G an upgrade over Carson Wentz, Lou? He could be. 
again, I think it's just a horse apiece there. Now, obviously, Wentz showed a lot of promise in Philadelphia before he got injured. Jimmy has never really done that. He's a steady guy. But again, it's another Band-Aid. You'd love to draft a quarterback, but oh, by the way, the, the guy that you're getting rid of costs you a number one pick because of the amount of time that he played this year. So Philadelphia has that pick. They're in a tough spot. I don't know how you get out of it. Yeah, you got to develop somebody. They can draft into the first round or maybe one of these one of these younger kids falls. I don't know. From your point of view, how many of these guys are going to get drafted in the first round? I think four of them Two? will go. No, I think four, four of them will go. Okay. Yeah, I do, I do think right. that. I do think the quarterbacks always get pushed up. And even if these guys like drop, it will be somewhere in the 20s. And there will be teams like the Colts who are going to be willing to mortgage th- their capital and get back I into the first I think they really have to love one of those kids to, to make another trade with future first-round picks to get up into the first round to take you know one of the four or five or whatever how many there are you know that are going to get pushed up like that so they're in a tough spot there's but there's so many teams just like that because they see what happens you know when you drop a great quarterback into a situation like the Colts where they've got a strong offensive line they've got the running back they've got a good defense need some weapons on the outside Michael Pittman Jr. is, I think, had a great year, but he's got a little bit of a ceiling there. I don't know how much better he's going to get, but you need other weapons on that team. There's some other needs, but again, the, the most important one, and it, you know, we can say this ad nauseum, is the quarterback position. You got to get that fixed, and there's just not enough great ones to go around. Uh, so you got to roll the dice sometimes, and a lot of cases it comes up snake eyes, and it seems that's been the case for the Colts here over the last few years. You know, we've got scouting combines coming up here in the next couple of weeks. We've got the HBCU Legacy Bowl this weekend, so we're in the talent evaluation period, if you would, of the NFL uh, season. But again. The offseason is going to come. So the the NFL never stops. So we're going to have a lot of stuff to keep talking about. But for Alex this week, I'm Lou. As always, peace.